Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Today we're going to be in the book of Exodus. We're going to look at chapters 3 and 4. So we ask this question today, who am I? God's call is a remarkable, wonderful, joyful, and terrifying thing. Many of you in this room have known this call, maybe in the big things in your life, vocation and marriage and the things that you know God was calling you to, maybe in the little things in life, just the little decisions, the little things in our lives along the way. You've experienced God's call. Perhaps you're experiencing it right now. Maybe you're in a season or a time in your faith or your walk with Christ in which you are experiencing a call from him. A call to obey further in some specific way. A call to serve in a specific way. A call to service. A call to suffering. A call to ministry, maybe even. Perhaps you're here today and you know you're hearing a clear call from God through his word, through his people. Maybe today you find yourself avoiding that call. Refusing that call, giving every excuse in the world not to obey and listen to that call. Maybe as we went through our series a couple weeks ago, Let's Go, as we talked about building relationships and doing outreach and praying, and God impressed something on your heart. Maybe the Holy Spirit convicted you of an area within those areas that you need to work on and build up as a Christian. Maybe in that you heard God's call and there's some reluctance, maybe some fear. Maybe just general good old cowardice. Maybe there's disobedience. We see in Exodus that God is a big God. And he does big things to accomplish his will. I mean, you can't think about the book of Exodus without thinking about God doing big things for his people. But there's another side to that. The other side where we see God using in the big things the small, the foolish, the seemingly weak, seemingly insignificant to do those big things. God doing extraordinary things through ordinary means, ordinary times, ordinary places, ordinary people, ordinary events. I mean, think about last week. We talked about Moses killing a guy and then running off into the desert and then sitting by a well and then marrying a girl and having a family. We look at that and we think, that's just life. But we see God at work in every step unfolding his plan and his promise in those seemingly weak things. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, this pleases God because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God intentionally chooses the foolish, the shameful, the seemingly insignificant, the ordinary. Those things that seem silly and ridiculous to the world, God intentionally chooses to use those things to shame the wise. And why would he do such a thing? 
A couple verses later in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31, so that all the boasting and all the glory and all the honor after something has been accomplished, all of it can only go to God. Because you can look at things and see the human means and the ordinary means and say, well, there's not much in that. There's not much in him. There's not much in that event or that event. But God was doing something extraordinary. None but God deserves the glory for this. And God has designed it in that way. Today we begin to see this very truth unfold even more in the life of Moses. Yet again, before we even get to the big stuff of Exodus, there are lessons to learn. There are truths to understand. We're going to see and we're going to hear God's call on this seemingly ordinary shepherd. We're going to be assured of God's presence and his power. Be encouraged to lay aside foolish doubt in our own abilities as we learn to trust in his ability. So that when we are tempted to ask with Moses, who am I? We might begin to rely not on ourselves, but on who he is. I'm going to read the first chunk all together to us. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And then from there, we're going to kind of scatter what we read uh, word for word. But beginning in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. That is the guy we were introduced last week as Reuel, clan name, first proper name being Jethro. Try to get Beverly Hillbillies out of your mind, but now I've said it and you can't. The priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, I have also seen the oppression with which, which, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Let's begin here today with the call. The call. And in verse 1, we begin to see this call come to Moses in a familiar sign. Here he is now shepherding. Remember last week, those inklings we saw of Moses as a shepherd as he delivered Zipporah and her sisters from the hand of those other shepherds and saved their flock. Moses was revealing himself to be in this role of shepherd. Now he finds himself as an actual shepherd, keeping the flocks of Jethro his father-in-law now, out in the middle of the wilderness. 
And notice the location where he is. He's at Horeb, which is called the mountain of God. And this is the very same mountain that we know as Mount Sinai. And Moses is sure to include here, sort of retroactively, looking back on it after the fact, that this is the mountain of God because after Moses sees God on the mountain, both in the burning bush and then at Sinai, this becomes the mountain of God. This is that very same place, God now appearing in this burning bush where he will later bring them back to and appear to them in the burning cloud above the sky. Remember I said that as we uh, look at the book of Exodus, we see sort of two halves. The first part is the narrative of the actual Exodus. And then from chapters 19 on is really just in one place, there at the foot of Sinai, as God gives Moses the law. So this is a significant place, the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Here, though, Moses is unaware that as he is tending a flock of sheep on Horeb, God will later call him back to that place, not with a flock of sheep, but a flock of people. But before we get to that point, Moses is going to learn there's work to be done, there's lessons to learn, and there are some pretty massive obstacles to overcome. And that all is starting right now. In verses 2 and 3, the Lord appears to Moses in a burning bush. It says in verse 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. In verse 3, Moses looks to see what's going on here. This isn't normal. A bush burning in the middle of the desert is normal. We know grass fires and brush fires around here happens all the time. Nothing, no big deal with the bush catching on fire from the heat and the dryness. Moses would not have been taken off guard by that. But there is something significant about this burning bush in that it is burning, but it is not consumed. It's not burning up. Perhaps there was no smoke. It wasn't charring. Something was different about what was going on with this fire in the bush than anything Moses had seen before. And we're already told that it's different than anything we've seen before because it's not just a flame. It is the very angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Now, as we went on and read, the voice of the angel seems to be speaking for God. Speaking for God in the first person. Whereas we're maybe led to believe later that this isn't just an angel, but it is the Lord speaking to Moses from the bush. And you would be absolutely correct. This is not just an angel. The Hebrew word here we have for angel is malak, which just means a messenger, someone who is sent with a message. This is a messenger of the Lord. And many scholars believe that this is not just an angel in terms of the created order of angels as we know them, Gabriel, Michael, and so on. This is actually supposed to be translated the Yahweh angel. Not the messenger from the Lord, but the Lord in the form of this messenger. Because the bush goes on to speak, the voice from the bush goes on to speak in the first person as God himself. This is what theologians call a theophany. A theophany just means an appearance of God that is visual in nature that is also outside the normal bounds of nature. Now, if you think about this, this is all over the Bible. You see this not only here in the burning bush, uh, but we'll see it later on Mount Sinai with the glory of the Lord on top of the mountain. Uh, We'll see it in the story of Abraham and the the pot and the torch. And the many times that God reveals himself in a visual, sensible way to people, 
uh, to outside of the bounds of nature, called a theophany. And that's what we have here in the burning bush, an appearance of God, visual in nature, outside of the bounds of nature, as God reveals himself to Moses. And Moses turns aside. It means he stops what he's doing. He's seemingly distracted by what's going on over here, this bush that is not consumed but is on fire. He's turning aside. He's distracted from what he feels is his primary job, being a shepherd, to see this bush that's on fire. But as he's turning aside and as he feels maybe distracted by this, he is turning to meet with none other than God himself. And he will learn his primary job, his primary call. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for bush, seneh, sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for what this mountain will come to be called, Sinai. And that this place of meeting with God is pivotal not just to Moses' life, but to the life of the people of Israel. So much so that as we go from the burning bush to Sinai and then to the founding of the nation of Israel in the promised land, they will continually look back on these experiences at Sinai as a landmark of who they are and who their God is. Sinai was this pivotal, central place. And we see it right here even in the beginnings of this story with the burning bush, a place of meeting with God. How many times does God turn you aside from what you're doing? How many times do you run into seeming distractions, things that are seemingly taking you away from your real priorities to something else, only to discover that God is leading you right where he wants you? How many times those distractions and those turning aside bring you into a meeting with God? what we call divine appointments, where you learn maybe your call or God brings you into someone's life or you and brings them into your life for his divine purposes and his will. How often God turns us aside from what we feel like we should be doing to show us what he wants us to do. Verses four through five, as Moses turns aside to see what this thing is, God speaks. It's interesting that the first thing we see God speak is Moses' name. And he says it twice. You know what we've talked about here long enough to know that when something is repeated, there's an emphasis there. And this is not just an emphasis as just to get Moses' attention, but to calm him, to quiet his spirit, so that he knows that what's happening here, though it is dangerous, we'll talk about that in a minute, does not intend to do Moses harm. That what Moses is seeing, although it's miraculous, And now it's starting to talk to him is nothing to be feared in terms of a fear to one's life right now. And he says, Moses, Moses. The ancient Near East, this repetition of one's name would have been to calm, to assure. It was endearment. And this is where God begins with Moses. Moses, Moses. And we see that in in Moses' response too. this very quick willing response as he hears his name called out by whatever's going on here he says here am I I'm here that's me what do you want from me it's interesting though that this gentle encounter with God Moses Moses here am I is immediately followed by the warning of verse 5 he said in verse 5 do not come near 
Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So immediately after calming him and using these terms of endearment with him, Moses, Moses, here am I. God says, don't come any closer. This is holy ground. And it's the only time in the Bible when the very ground is declared to be holy because of the presence and the power of God. There is something about this time and this place that is made holy by God's presence. And we see a timely warning for Moses. Moses, Moses, yes, I love you. Yes, I'm comforting you, but don't come any closer for your own sake. It's a timely warning for us, too. The modern church has so trivialized and so neutered the presence of God that we treat him or we treat worship, we treat his presence so flippantly, without care, without preparation, without really thinking about what this is that we're doing as we come into the presence of a holy, majestic, and righteous God. We forget who he is, and we forget who we are, and we have to understand there is danger in that scenario. Yes, Moses is called lovingly and tenderly, but he is not called without warning. God says, before we go any further, Moses, you need to know a few things. You need to know who you are, and you need to know who I am, and you need to approach accordingly. What a message for the modern church to approach God in light of who he is, understanding who we are before we dare to approach him in anything that we call worship. In verse 6, he tells us who he is. Well, who are you, Lord? I am the God of your father, Moses. And I'm the God of your father's fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am that very God. Moses immediately understands what's going on here. He's taken off his shoes. He's on holy ground. He's been warned not to come closer. There's this revelation that this is the one true and living God. Moses, in the end of verse 6, hides his face because now he understands and he's afraid to look upon God. John Calvin says in the introduction to his seminal work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he begins by telling us this very thing. We need to understand who God is and we need to understand who we are before we go any further with theology. And this is how he describes it. Hence that dread and amazement with which, as Scripture uniformly relates, listen, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. When we see those who previously stood firm and secure so quaking with terror that the fear of death takes hold of them, nay, they are in a manner swallowed up and annihilated. The inference to be drawn is that men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. We're never so fully convinced of our own insignificance until we're also fully convinced of the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God. And isn't this where any call of God begins? Isn't this where it must all start? 
God says to us, we're not going to go anywhere and we're not going to do anything until we come face to face with his majesty and our sinfulness. This is where God brings Moses so that he can truly understand the mission. Because before he can truly understand the mission and the call behind the mission, he has to understand who God is. And he has to understand who he is in light of who God is. Moses is brought face to face with that and ironically then hides his face from this holy God. But God continues to talk. We hear the mission beginning in verse 7. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Do you see God's three like striking verbs there? I have, I have, I have. In verse 7, I have seen, I have heard. And verse 8, I have come down. We don't hear that percussion that's there in the original Hebrew, but it's very percussive and rhythmic and short. God telling us in no uncertain terms, I see, I know, and I'm going to do something about it. He has come down, condescended now to do something about it through this man, Moses. And that's all fine and good, God. I'm sure Moses thought this is a great idea. You know, I killed an Egyptian for beating one of my Hebrew brothers. I want them delivered. I want them saved. That's a wonderful idea, God. Go do it. Go deliver them. Verse 10. Come, I will send you. Hold on now. God, praise God that you want to do something. I'm so glad you want to work, you want to move, you want to save God says, yeah, but I want to use you to do it. It's all fine and good and wonderful for God to choose to do something, to work, to save, to deliver. We say, praise God, until he says to us, and I want to use you. As we pray for our lost family members in our community, our friends, we long for God to save them. We want God to save them. We pray for God to build relationships to help us with outreach in our church and our community. We know promised, God has promised to work in those things. But in all those things, he's saying to you, he's saying to me, I will do those things. I want to do those things, but I'm going to use you to do it. I wonder how that hits you this morning. Maybe how it hit Moses in verse 11 when he says in response, oh, Who am I that you want to use me to do this? Me go to Pharaoh to free the people of Israel from their slavery? Well, we're not to the point of absolute refusal yet. We're not quite to the point with Moses where he's giving excuses not to obey yet. In fact, many believe this was just kind of a formal thing that people would say in that time, an idiom a way of saying something that was just simply sort of a false humility. You know, when someone compliments something you did, something you cooked or you drew or drew, like you're sitting around drawing, talking about my kids, or painting or something, and you say, that was really good. They say, oh, it's nothing. You know, we kind of are proud of it sometimes, but at least in the South, we don't pretend like we're proud of it. We pretend like we're not proud of it so that you say more nice things about us. Is that what Moses is doing here? Oh, Lord, who, who am I that you've chosen to do this? The sort of false humility that may be demonstrating his understanding of his inadequacy, but isn't necessarily arguing with God yet, not giving excuses, not disobeying yet. And it's met with God's tenderness in verse 12. What does God say? How does God respond? Not anger, 
not rebuke, but very simply, Moses, I will be with you. Moses' false humility is met with God's tenderness and this promise and this comfort of his power and his presence. I will be with you. And and one more thing, I'm going to bring you right back here. And that will be a sign for you. This Sinai, where you are, will be an important place in the remaining history of my people. I will be with you. I'll bring you back here. And you'll know it was I who called you. And who enabled you? Maybe you're here today contemplating a call from God. It's important to remember these things. That God's call often comes within the normal, everyday, mundane things in life. Young people, youth, college age, as you're beginning to explore college and career and then marriage and all the fun stuff that comes after that. Maybe you adults seeking a career change or a call from God somewhere else in life. You know, we often sit around fretting and how much time is spent at steps like this, crying and fretting over a decision to be made. When God isn't necessarily going to say, hey, go to this college. That's what God sounds like. Hey, marry that person. That'll be great. Or hey, be a missionary. You know, Kevin DeYoung's book about the will of God, it's a little short book called Just Do Something. I think it perfectly captures this idea that we spend so long waiting on God to be like, zap, this is what you're supposed to do for the rest of your life. When in fact, God is often leading us, always leading us, in the normal, everyday, mundane things in life, like this shepherd out in the middle of a field, watching his flocks when his whole world was turned upside down. God says to Moses here in the middle of nothing, I want to use you to change everything. But not before, Moses, you have a clear understanding of who you are and who I am. And not before you're assured of my presence and my power and my strength in the middle of this. Maybe today as God's calling you, you would ask with Moses, who am I? And I would tell you, you're asking the wrong question. Number two today, let's look at the name. Moses continues with his questions, and now maybe we're moving from a little bit of false humility to some actual doubt. Verse 13, Moses says, okay, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they ask me, well, what's his name? What am I supposed to tell them? Moses says, look, God, I'm going to these people who are in a pluralistic, polytheistic, pantheistic society. Thousands of gods and the Pharaoh is a god and the Nile is a god and the day is a god and the sun is a god and the moon is a god. And I'm going to come to them and say, hey, the God, the one and only God told me to come get you. Who am I supposed to tell them his name is? Which God? Who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Maybe Moses had forgotten that. Maybe those people 400 years down in Egypt had forgotten that. What is your identity? What do I tell them? In verse 14, we have the revelation of God's divine name to Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. In Hebrew, there is a yeah, a ser, a yeah which is a verb, I am who I am, I will be what I will be. But there's a proper noun version of that that we're very familiar with. And the proper noun version of those verbs is Yahweh, the noun form of the word I am. 
Tell them, verse 15, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob sent them, sent them to you, sent me to you, and his name is Yahweh. I want you to contrast this to Moses' self-styled play on false humility. This false humility, he says, who am I? And God says, no, 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 you've got this wrong, Moses. The question is not who are you. The question is who I am. The question is not what can you do, but what can I do? The question is not who are you and what can you do and your inadequacies and your inabilities and your helplessness, but what I am, who I will be, what I will do, what I will, what I want, God says, because I am sovereign. What an impetus for service to God. What promises for our callings, whatever God is calling you to do. That while we are weak and unable and utterly dependent on him for everything, he is all strength and he is all power because he alone simply and eternally is. Anselm, the medieval theologian, said it this way, What can be sweeter than to have life in him who is the blessed life itself? What more desirable than by prayer and conversation to be continually in him in whom alone is true being. Nay, rather, who alone is true being. God says to Moses, you're asking the wrong question. It's not who am I. God says it is that I am. How sovereign is God? How sovereign is this great I am? Verse 19, he's sovereign enough to know that Pharaoh won't budge. I'm going to send you, how about this for a mission? I'm going to send you, verse 19, but Pharaoh will say no. Verse 20, I'm going to send you, Pharaoh will say no, but I'm going to do something about it. Pharaoh will not budge unless he sees my wonders. And God says, and guess what? I'm able to do those very wonders. Verse 20, I'm going to do something about it. In verse 21, I'm going to put fear into the hearts of the Egyptians. They'll learn who the one true living God is. In verses 21 through 22, God says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Do you see that? That's the language of warfare. That's the language of a battle that has been won. Pharaoh's going to say no. I'm going to show him who I really am. He will change his mind. You will leave and you will take the spoils and the plunder of a war that you didn't even have to fight. You will have victory in this, Moses. Do you hear the certainty in that for Moses? Moses, go deliver my people. Pharaoh will say no. Doesn't matter. The Godfather was on yesterday. I couldn't help but think of that. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. I'm going to show him my wonders, and I will deliver my people. Look at verse 17. I promise that I will bring you up out of the land of affliction. Go do it. Here's how it's going to go down. But you will deliver my people. There's certainty here for you today, too. Moses was told, go and deliver my people. God says, I will do it because I am. 
Maybe today you should come to terms with who he is and who you are. Have peace with this God through Jesus. Have his spirit, his power, and his presence inside of you by the Holy Spirit. So that whatever and wherever he calls you to, you can know with Moses that he will do it. Not without you. Maybe sometimes in spite of you. But he's going to do it through you. Chapter 4 we pick up with number 3 today. The excuse, I should say the excuse is. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Moses says, but, but, but. That's like a trope used on all kinds of TV shows and things when people want to give an excuse for something. But, but, but. That's really what's going on here. That's how Moses keeps responding to God. Out of all these powerful things God is revealing and telling him, Moses, but, but, but. Look at verse 1. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. How am I going to prove that you appeared to me, Lord? How am I going to prove to them that you did this? And God says, okay, I will condescend to you one more time. I will acquiesce to your foolishness one more time, and I'm going to send you some signs to show them. But I'm going to do it in an unanticipated way. Like Moses at the cavern there in the wilderness, you remember, he saw the fire, he saw the earthquake, the mighty rushing wind, and he thought, man, God is in that, God is in that, and God is in that, but he wasn't in any of it. And then God came how? A still, small voice. God says, okay, I'm going to show you how you can prove that I sent you. Maybe Moses is expecting an earthquake, a whirlwind, a fire, big stuff from God. And God says in verse 2, what's that in your hand? And Moses says, the staff? So common, so ordinary. Be like God looking at us and saying, what's that in your hand? He said, my smartphone? My, my lifesaver's mints in my pocket? I, a staff? What's that in your hand? No fire from heaven, no earthquake. Just a humble, lowly shepherd with an everyday, ordinary stick. God says in verses 3 through 5, I want you to throw that stick on the ground. And the staff becomes a snake. Moses goes running away from it. And God says, no, 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 no. don't run away. Come back and pick it up. Now, I, I'm not like terrified of snakes. But I don't know that, I mean, this just would have been a hard command. Like just trying to reach down there. Some of you would have been still running, no matter what God said. And he turns around, picks up the snake, it becomes a staff again. Well, that's pretty impressive. Okay, now Moses, here's another one. Put your hand in your cloak and then take it out. Verses 6 through 8. Moses puts his hand in his cloak. He takes it out. It's leprous. It's eaten up with some skin disease. And then God says, okay, put it back in. Take it back out. And it's whole. That's great. When you get there to the people, show them these things. That's just a, a small sign that I'm there with you. And he tells them to do another one in verse 9. Another one, when you get there. Look in chapter 4, verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile shall become blood on the dry ground. Show that to the people when you get there. Of course, we see these signs. We know what's coming. We know these are just short little tidbits, little shadows of what is to come. And we think that would be enough. 
We think it'd be enough for Moses. God has, has gone on and on with Moses to this point, and still he says, verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. I can't do this. I can't speak to Pharaoh. Choose someone else to go. In verse 11 of chapter 4, God says, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God has kind of had enough at this point. Now, if it were me, I would have gone on and found someone else to do this that wouldn't argue with me so much. But then Moses, three times, four times, giving his excuses to God, and God says, wait a second, don't you remember who I am? I am the creator. I'm aware of your weaknesses. I'm aware of your limitations, and I have still chosen to use you because it is not you who is so spectacular. I am. A poor wilderness shepherd versus the most powerful figure in the known world. A throng of poor slaves versus the greatest empire in the world. And yet God says to this shepherd, I'm going to use you to do it. And it will happen. Why? So that when people look at this and see it, there will be no other explanation but God. Verse 12, God promises him success. In verses 14 through 16, God again says, Okay, Moses, I'll, 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 I'll acquiesce a little to what you're saying. I'll send Aaron, your brother, with you. And he can be your spokesperson. He can be your mouthpiece. Though it's interesting, as we continue through the story, Aaron sort of fades out of the picture, doesn't he? And Moses comes into who God wanted him to be in the first place. And look down at verse 16. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and you shall be uh, as God to him. Verse 17. And take in your hand this staff, which will do the signs. Do you hear what God did there? Okay, Moses, I'm going I'm to work with you here. I'm going to do some things that make you comfortable in this situation making Moses think he's getting some headway in the conversation only to come back where he started in the first place. Moses, what's that in your hand? Verse 17, Moses, I'm going to do this. Just be sure you take your staff with you. You ever notice how God will allow you to feel as if you got your way, you got what you asked for, you got what you wanted? Sometimes, just let it be and completely fall apart. So that in the end, you will submit to his plan, or in this case, allow you to feel as if you argued your way into or out of something, only to find yourself in God's root after all. God says, as I was saying, Moses, before you kept interrupting me, I know who you are. I know who I am. I've chosen you. Take your staff and go do what I've told you to do. Number four today, the journey. Last part of chapter 4 there. In verse 18, Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. He seemingly agrees to God's plan. He goes. He gets Jethro's blessing to go. In verses 19 through 20, we see this promise. The Lord said to Moses, Go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. That sounds awfully familiar to what happened in Matthew chapter 2, isn't it? As Jesus, the baby Jesus and his family are in Egypt fleeing Herod, an angel comes and says to them, Hey, get up and go back to Nazareth. All who are seeking your life are dead. He now says to this type of Jesus, this former deliverer, Arise and go back. All those who sought you are dead. My plan is unfolding exactly as I expected it to. God says, get up, go back, 
And Moses seemingly agrees. But there's one more thing. There's a glaring spot of disobedience. I want you to look at what God says beginning in verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. Now listen to this. Go do this to Pharaoh, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You hear what God is saying here? We don't have time to get into all the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. We'll get there later. Just suffice it for now that God says, I'm going to send you and Pharaoh's going to say no until I kill his firstborn son. That's going to be what it takes to change his mind. There will be an exchange in the land of Egypt. Your firstborn son, Pharaoh, for my firstborn son, Israel. But wait. The scene changes in verse 24. God's no longer threatening Pharaoh. Now he's threatening Moses. At verse 24. Y'all, get your, this is some good memory verse, life verse stuff here. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way to the Lord, on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, in the, the way the language is used, we're not talking about Moses. We're talking about his firstborn son, Gershom. Remember him? God is threatening to put him to death. Why? Verse 25. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, you come to the end of this. This isn't in the children's books, is it? This isn't in the little Hanna-Barbera cartoons versions. A violent, gruesome picture where God confronts Moses for his own disobedience and not circumcising his son, Gershom. Zipporah quickly circumcises Gershom. He doesn't want him to die touches the flesh to him, and many scholars believe she's talking to Gershom when she says, you are my blood relative. Not to Moses, you're my bridegroom of blood, but to Gershom, you are now my blood relative. And what happens? Well, the Lord relents and spares his firstborn son. He spares him, but not without blood and not without obedience. We see something in this. The Lord is making a promise I will kill your firstborn son, Pharaoh, so that I might have mine, Israel. To Moses, he says, and I will kill your firstborn son, Moses, because you've disobeyed me. There's an exchange. There's a trade. Your firstborn son for mine. Your firstborn son for your disobedience. But I know of another exchange The exchange when God says to wicked, vile, dead sinners, like you and me, not yours for mine. Not your life, your firstborn for mine. Because of your sin, because of your rebellion. God doesn't say to us, I'll take everything from you. In the gospel, God says, not your firstborn for mine, but my firstborn for you. You mean Israel? God's firstborn is Israel? No. What Israel pointed to. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. Those were just shadows and types. Christ is the substance. And it won't come at the shedding of your blood. And it won't come of the shedding of your children's blood, but the shedding of his blood. And God would deliver a people yet again, not merely from some earthly tyrant, but from sin and death and hell and Satan. And how would he do it? With mighty signs and wonders and miracles and a spectacle? No. Through an unlikely, lowly, poor Jewish carpenter raised up on a tree to die. You thought Moses and his staff versus Egypt was a mismatch. How about this poor, lowly carpenter from Nazareth versus the cosmological forces of evil and the wrath of God himself? And he comes carrying a cross to die. So when Moses leads the people out of Egypt, people look at that and say, none but God could do this. When people see a host of captives set free from their sin and set free from death, you got to look at that and you got to say, who else but God could do that? And you have to respond the way Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, this is all to the praise of his glorious grace. And how does God choose to do this? Again, through Jesus. How does he get the message out? Through miracles and signs and wonders and spectacle and sensationalism? No. But through those very dead, vile, wicked sinners that he has raised from the dead and then calls to go into the world and to preach the gospel. And the world looks at that and says, that's foolish, that's stupid, that's ridiculous. God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, of course you'd think so. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to those who are being saved. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, we see that it is no less than the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And oh, how God would use you. How God would use me. Not calling us with a fire in a burning bush, but with the fire of the Holy Ghost that he put in our hearts when we came to him in faith and he empowered us. And he says, what, Acts 1.8? You will be my witnesses. And now he says to us, He says to you, go and obey. And we would say, but, but, but. God knows your weakness. God knows your limitations. God knows your timidity. God knows your fear. And that's exactly why he chooses to use you. So that people will say, who but God. Stop making excuses, stop avoiding, stop refusing, stop disobeying. Hear the call of God, realize who you are, realize who he is, and then obey. In other words, move from asking who am I to understanding who he is and saying in light of that, here am I. God knows exactly who you are and he knew it when he chose to save you. You're not much, I'm not much, but God is everything and he asks you this morning what do you have what did I give you it may not seem like much but I will use it to blow the very gates off of hell 1st Corinthians 127 God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise verse 31 so that all the boasting will go to him alone 
I don't know what you need to surrender today. Unbelievers, you need to surrender your lives and repent and follow Jesus in faith. Believers today, God is just asking for simple obedience to his great commission, to his call, maybe in your home, in your priorities, in your lives. Young people, youth right here, I never, I never hesitate to tell you in a group this big, God is calling some of you to ministry. God is calling some of you to be missionaries. And that is not to diminish God's call on anything else, like a doctor or a teacher, wherever he uses you. But God is calling some of you to those things. You know it right now. You feel it in your heart right now. And I'll tell you to obey him. Who am I? We're asking the wrong question. We should be saying, here am I. In verses 27 through 31, Moses takes Aaron. They go to the people. They show them the signs. And they begin to pray and prepare for what God will do. And in verse 31, it says, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Preparing for what God will do. Preparing themselves to obey. They bowed their heads and they worshipped. Maybe that's where we should start this morning. Our God and our Father, we love you and we thank you for your immeasurable gift that you've given us in Christ. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that calls us sinners, not just to salvation, but to your mission in the world. We ask that you would awaken us to that mission. That you would instill in us that fire of your Holy Spirit, the fire of your great commission to do what you've called us to do. God, rid us of our fear and our timidity. Rid us of our disobedience here today. Humble us before you. Help us to remember who we are and who you are and to find fear in that, but also to find comfort in that because you are with us and you are for us. God, help us now to obey. Whatever it is you're calling us to, salvation, to repent of our stubbornness and submit to baptism, joining this local church, answering a call to ministry. God, move in our hearts right now by your Holy Spirit as we simply say, Lord, here am I. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.